HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by GigPro, the staffing solution for businesses and workers in the hospitality industry. Check out gigpro.com and download the GigPro app today. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Greg, it's just the two of us today. I know. Damon is uh, is making his way through the beautiful countryside of uh, California, and we wish him well. But uh, we had an interesting development here in New York. I don't know if you're aware of this, Souther, but apparently, uh, according to the Top Pizza Council, the the special secret Illuminati 50 Top Pizza, that was what it was called. I couldn't remember. It was, you know, some, some secret shadowy pizza organization. Uh, there was a restaurant in New York City that was rated the best pizza in the world recently. Um, in the world. In the world, in the I mean, world, it, it, beat out a bunch of places it seems in to Italy stand to and reason. France. We're, we're, yeah, it seems to stand to reason. We're we're a well known city for for making making and eating pizza. Of course, yeah, exactly. We love pizza here, but I have I have some beef with this place, and it's not the beef I, that I think I you might expect. You'd bring it up if you if you didn't have some beef. <laughs> uh, the place is called Una Pizza Napolitana, and it is sounds delightful. It, it it does it does sound delightful, and it looks really good. But my my issue my issue has nothing to do with the construction of the pies itself. My issue is the fact that this place is only open three days a week. And I personally feel that if in my city there is the best pizza in the world, I should be able to get it on a random Tuesday when I pop in. I feel like I shouldn't have to make a reservation a month in advance to eat pizza. That feels like that feels like a needless pretentification of the people's dish that I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not on board for that. Your pizza might be fantastic, but share it with people and let everybody have it and make it so that it's not just, you know, for people who come here just for that. Cause to me being only open three days a week and requiring reservations to eat your pizza, you're a tourist spot. I'm sorry. I just got to come out and say it. Mm. You think they've uh, undemocratized the pizza? I do. I do. And because as you were saying, like, you know, we're New York, we're, we're very much a pizza city, but it is a, it is 
a dish that I think, you know, we as New Yorkers are used to being able to like grab and go. And sure, there are more upscale pizzas, like, you know, like Roberta's, uh, a place that's very near and dear to our heart that I used to be able to go to once a week. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't anymore. Thanks a lot, virus. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, even that spot had like a really great to-go counter where you could roll up and just grab a pie to go. And you could do that most days of the week. I'm not, I honestly can't remember off the top of my head if they were open seven days a week. I'll be honest. I can't remember a lot of things that happened at Roberta's, but, uh, you know, it, it, it seems it just, it, something about it feels wrong. It feels wrong, Southern. I don't like it. Well, I would argue, as you know, I will, that pizza <laughs> in New York has slid off its mantle in the past decade or so, regardless, due to the massive influx of dollar slice joints. And, you know, the jokes, of course, abound. Uh, I always say, you know what they say about dollar pizza? That's not cheese. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think when, when the dollar slice became so popular, so many of them opened, that the places that weren't dollar slice couldn't compete with, you know, subpar cheeses and sauces, etc. So everyone had to kind of dumb down. I feel like the the democratization of pizza in New York made it worse, right? We're known for this thing and suddenly we're all willing to accept it being subpar at best. I don't know. I uh, I I don't know. I I mean, first of all, one interesting thing we should talk about is that pizza is now the the bucket slice now costs you about $5, so it's past the $5 mark. So that's uh that's that's a, that's a whole other kettle of fish uh that you could potentially put on the pizza of the of the folks coming into the market with a quality product and willing to charge people for it and willing to bear the brunt of you know getting snide looks um from folks who expect a dollar slice um you know but no absolutely uh, like it's rebounding i guess We're, we're, we're coming around the bend again I guess what I'm saying is I enjoy that there's a sliding scale of pizzas. You know, it's like when I buy a dollar <laughs> slice, I know what I'm getting. Like when I buy a ticket to ride on the mega bus, I know what I'm getting. When I buy a Bud Light Limerita and save the receipt so that I can get my $20 check from Anheuser-Busch, I know what I'm getting. All right. You know, like you're, you're not, I'm not going to walk into a dollar slice spot and walk away and be, and go on Yelp and be like, they told me they didn't have Sopracetta one star. But I do think that for the places that put themselves up as, you know, the best pizza on earth, literally, I think that there should be more opportunities for people to get it. I think even places that are like, you know, super fine dining should be open more than three days a week. I don't, I'm not down with this whole like, oh, it's the best in the world and you can't get in. Nah, 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 nah thing. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> not for, not for foie gras, but especially not for the people's meal, especially not for pizza. It just, it, it rubs me the wrong way. The so, but meal. that being said, that being said, mm-hmm. um, Everybody's having staffing issues. Maybe this is not a choice that they've made on their behalf. So if this is true, and if they listen to the show, and if they haven't already turned off this episode and unsubscribed from the podcast because I've been talking shit on them for the last five minutes, um, I would say open, open, you know, hire some more folks. Be open on Tuesday. I'll come by. You open up on Tuesday. I'll come by. I'll Instagram it. I'll tweet it. Um, my dozens of followers will see it and uh yeah give you give you a little bit more business for the best pizza shop on planet freaking earth yeah well i you know i I think i'm gonna seek the place out and make a reservation 
because uh, I, I'm I think they have some spots open see. in January. I'm now interested to see and taste the best pizza in the world. Um, I do want to touch just briefly on the fact that I sound a little rough today because I had many drinks last night at the Liquor.com awards ceremony that was held here in New York City. The first time they've ever done an awards kind of thing. There was no actual ceremony. It was a big party. It was great. <laughs> um, they, they didn't have a ceremony. They they wrote up a gigantic article and they listed off categories and they delved into over 500 bars across the country and each of them was... Uh, mentioned in the, the longest part of the article, uh, so, you, so it's a great compendium of bars to look at. Uh, and they created categories just similar to the ones at Tales of the Cocktail, um, you know, uh, and they they passed out those awards. And several of those people traveled all the way to New York last night. So Kate Gerwin's bar, Happy Accidents, was uh, ah, best, what a best, new, yeah, best new American bar, just like it was at Tales of the Cocktail. She brought her entire team, everyone, uh, because uh, she's just that kind of badass. And they set up a pop-up bar, Basic, right here in New York City, one for uh, Best Neighborhood Cocktail Bar. Or not Ooh. even Cocktail, Best Neighborhood Bar, um, which is a huge uh, nod to them. They've been around for about 10 years now, and it's, a, it's an adorable spot that I've been to several, several, several times. Yeah. Um, Lovable. Infinitely lovable spot. Yeah. Uh, they gave some award to a uh, recent guest, uh, uh, Josh Davis from Brown and Balanced uh, for community building. Um, Dale DeGroff, they honored with some sort of, you know, lifetime achievement situation. And the event was held at uh, Crown Shy. I don't know if you've been there, but it's uh, Crown Shy, Saga, and Overstory, all in a gigantic building at 70 Pine. Um, and uh, they put Dale all the way up in, in Overstory, which only holds about... 25, 30 people. They put a big, beautiful neon sign up there that said Rainbow Room. Dale uh, and Leo were behind the bar, both wearing their the, the jackets that they used to wear from the Rainbow Room and making drinks from the Rainbow Room's menu. Um, it was charming. Uh, Dale sang wow. a few tunes and then, then took us out on the 360-degree balcony overlooking all of New York City. It was quite a high time, literally and figuratively. And uh, congratulations to all the, the winners. Um, my good friend Jamie Boudreaux won for world's best spirit selection uh and beat out of course amori amargo we were the runner-up in, in that category so didn't take anything home myself but happy to see everyone uh <laughs> doing doing so well all over the place so it was great it was a real good time that's fantastic yeah and and you know i mean we're we're on we're on the speakeasy we're used to runnering up we feel it feels good at this point it feels like home that's but right. um yeah congratulations <laughs> Congratulations to everybody on that list. I mean, everyone that you mentioned is is deserving of all of the accolades that they have and will receive in the future because they're all amazing people doing amazing things and uh, building great communities. Like bringing your whole team to the ceremony. What a what a badass move! And you know, yeah, everything, no, everyone, all the way down to like the dishwasher. Everyone. Yeah, and everything and everything not- that Josh does is is incredible and really only helps to make the industry better. So. Congrats to them, and uh, yeah, um, sounds like a, sounds like a well deserved hangover, Souther. Yeah, well, uh, I'm <laughs> over as much as I am just exhausted, you know, <laughs> just a little, just a little beat up. Yeah. Uh, so let's get to the studio. Uh, let's who's do in, it. Who's in the virtual studio with us today? Um, in the virtual studio with us, you might hear a little bit of buzzing in the background. That's because it's Bees Knees Week. Uh, and joining us in the studio, we have Sam Nellis from Bar Hill. Sam, how you doing, man? Good, good. Coming to you live here from Montpelier, Vermont. How is Mont- <laughs> Montpelier, Vermont today? Montpelier, Vermont today is a little rainy, slightly cold. 
<laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> sounds sounds typical. I lived up there for two years, um, and that's uh, that's the viewpoint that I remember. Uh, everything's very green, but it's kind of cold and a little wet all the time. <laughs> it also happens to be the smallest state capital in the country and the only one without a McDonald's. Uh, that's right. I remember that as well. <laughs> only 8,000 residents when I lived there and uh, a city ordinance for against fast food in general, right? No McDonald's, no Subway, no none of those guys. That does sound very on brand for the capital of Vermont. Bernie exactly. Bernie would yeah, be proud. Much. Um, I think he is. So, so Sam, you were the mixological wizard of Bar Hill. So tell me, first of all, how, how did you wind up um, acquiring your magical powers and uh, in, in this job in general? Sure. I mean, I come from the just the bartending world, bar managing world, and I was opening up a big uh, spot in a beautiful mill in, in Burlington, Vermont, or in Winooski, actually, right next to Burlington. And I was doing, you know, things that cocktail bartenders do. And I was working a lot with Bar Hill for a couple of years. And, and eventually I was looking to just uh, make a change. And Bar Hill was at the top of my list in terms of, of local companies to work for. Because even at the time, four years ago, they were doing so well outside of the state. You know, So I saw a lot of opportunity for the growth of the, of the company. And it, it's nice to see that yeah, we're doing really well locally. Obviously, we're, we're actually the, the number one selling gin in Vermont you know, even more than the the big the big name brands and everything, um, and so the, they were. Bar Hill is in a tiny little distillery, about six seven thousand square feet, up in the Northeast Kingdom, and they purchased a, a plot of land in the heart of Montpelier, Vermont, and uh, about twenty six thousand square feet building they built. You know, with from from nothing, and obviously they were most focused on the distillery portion um, making sure that was all you know correct and and uh, avail and and ready um, and they had a, a area for the hospitality program that was just kind of left blank it was it was a room but they hadn't been working with the architects or anyone for that yet and so they wanted someone to come in and help design it so it was a really amazing opportunity I got to come in and and literally draw and graph paper with the architects some ideas um, we ended up with a, a half hexagon shaped bar in the room with some local uh, granite that's harvested basically just down the street um, and designed that whole bar program, the physical bar and the, and the program. So really introducing cocktail culture to, to this region, you know, unlike a brewery or a winery, most of our products are consumed in cocktails. And so it was really important to us that we had that at our spot instead of just doing just tastings like a tasting room we wanted to create a whole play a whole scene basically with food and, and drinks and even beer and wine and um a restaurant basically um and it's been it's been really awesome the community is is really happy about it here it's it's really kind of a hub for for education you know we, we do tons of cocktail classes and spirit education classes and you know behind the scenes distillery tours and you know, come this time of year, we're doing a lot of education around around the bees and how important they are to to agriculture in general. You know, it's about one in three bites of food that we eat at a restaurant uh, require bees for pollination. So very important little creatures um, for our entire agricultural system. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and not the, just... the, the gin. Sorry, the gin itself is 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 made from honey, right? Yeah. So we were founded by a beekeeper about ten years ago, who was really passionate about using raw honey and everything he was doing. So raw honey, you know, has never been heated over 95 degrees. It's not filtered. It's it's not fined. It's nothing added, nothing taken away. 
um, and eventually wanted to get into the beverage industry with his raw honey idea and partnered with a distiller who's now the president of the company, Ryan Christensen and head distiller um, to make some products. And so we have a, a vodka that's distilled 100% from honey. So, you know, no sugars from wheat or potatoes or anything like that. It's purely sugar from honey that's fermented into a mead. And then we distill that. Um, you know, it's to distill vodka, you have to follow some rules. You have to go up to 195 proof. You have to distill it twice. And technically, you have to filter it. Um, obviously, a lot of other vodka producers are kind of boasting about how much they're distilling it, you know, 12 times distilled and filtered through diamonds or whatever. Um, <laughs> we're quite the opposite. We're trying to we, we, we literally only distill twice and we do a very minimal filtration because we're trying to preserve that that amazing ag premium agricultural raw honey flavor. So the vodka actually comes out retaining some flavor of the original agricultural ingredient. Um, and then the gin, of course, um, the raw honey is all collected from 250 miles from around our location. So we like to think of honey as like the ultimate form of terroir in a lot of ways, right? The bees can only go so far from their hive and they can only harvest literally what's what's around them. And so our we use that honey a little bit like our botanical blend in the gin. So the gin we're actually just distilling with juniper berry and then we're finishing it with a little bit of raw honey. Um, so it's technically making kind of an old Tom style gin because it has some sweetener added afterwards, but it's really a single digit percentage of honey, not really to make too sweet or too much of a honey flavored gin, but to more have those hundred, 150 wildflowers that the bees collect to come through as, as botanicals. So in a way it's one botanical juniper, but then with the raw honey, we kind of use the, the, the saying countless botanicals because it's hard to know. Almost. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, we can all understand that when you have clover honey, you can taste the clover. When you have blueberry honey that the bees are pollinating blueberries, you can taste blueberries in the honey. You know, there's a great example of that on, on my bar, which is um, Del Air Barista. One of my favorite Amari is uh, honey sweetened and the bees are pollinating the gentian flower, which is the bittering agent. So the honey itself, when, when, when isolated, is bitter. So it's a bitter honey. So I can see where, yeah, what's the, what's the term used? Undisclosed number of an incalculable number of botanicals yes countless <laughs> you're confusing me i forgot countless botanicals yeah i mean yeah and, and that's and that's kind of the beauty of of you know using the bees to do this is that they're you know these amazing very industrious little little critters and you know they're have very uh, famously in, in the press been uh, having a rough go of it these last few years. So talk to me a little bit about, about that and what you at um, Caledonia Spirits are, are looking to do to help these little fellas out. Totally. Um, they are having a rough go of it. And, and, you know, our, our goal at Bar Hill has always been to connect agriculture to cocktail culture. And so at the, at the beginning, you know, our focus was really on the relationships with these, um, apiary, apiarists and uh, beekeepers, um, making sure that, you know, they're getting a, a correct price that, that's, that's a sustainable price for their, for their, for their little farm, um, for their products. But then, you know, one step beyond that. So now we're, we're taking care of the folks that are taking care of the bees, but how are we actually helping the bees? Right. And, and so bees, because of monocropping and, and bringing bees all over the country to, to help pollinate the huge, huge monocrop farms and pesticide use and millions of reasons why bees are, are dying off. And without bees and without pollinators in general, 
the the world would really struggle more than it is already. Um, so what what we're doing at Bar Hill to try to help that is for the last five years now we've launched Bees Knees Week, um, which started last Friday. It's usually about the last week of September into a little bit of October, and so it ends October third this year. And it's an initiative. It's a sustainability initiative, and it's technically the largest sustainability initiative in the country right now in terms of how many people participate in it. Um, and long story short, anyone can participate by drinking a bee's knees or a riff on a bee's knees, taking a photo, posting it on Instagram or social media and using hashtag bee's knees week and tagging at Bar Hill. Um, and then Bar Hill will plant or sponsors the planting of 10 square feet of wild pollinator habitat. Uh, per post. So every photo you take and you post, it's 10 square feet and it, it becomes relatively significant. Last year, we, we planted about 200,000 square feet um, of pollinator habitat. And these are working with nonprofit organizations around the country that are basically planting, you know, native flowers, a, a diverse group of flowers um, in areas that are either just normally mowed grass or, you know, a plot of dirt or something like that. Um, sometimes they're working like underneath solar farms or, you know, uh, near near roadways and things. And it's it's amazing. They they have like a metric where they're counting. Uh, it's a, it's a very scientific method where they literally just visually count as many pollinators as they can see in 15 minutes. Different types of pollinators. And um, when it was, well, we have one of our sites that was just kind of a monoculture place, and it was 15. Um, pollinators in 15 minutes they counted and then after just one year after one season of the new planting um, they counted 175 in the same 15 minutes so really wow. really epic uh, impact and it's visual and it's, it's visible you know and countable so it's really pretty cool to see yeah that's got to be very gratifying to to be able to literally see the difference and have it be that massive totally and we work you know with these these organizations that are so wonderfully obsessed with pollinators and they're in love with them and to see the look on their faces when they're they're pointing out some random bumblebee by name and saying that they haven't personally seen that one in two or three years and now they have it's it's really wonderful that's fantastic and i love i i i love this idea of just these fields of wildflowers with just bees everywhere just buzzing around happy as, as clams is that just kind of what it is is it i i kind of want you to paint me a picture with words is it just these like endless fields of wildflowers or are these like crops that you can also use or no it's 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 not to use it's it's really just for the nature but so it's planted in a you know a intelligent way so that the different groups of flowers are flowering at different times you know so it's basically it's providing the longest type of uh, seasonal habitat basically for for the pollination to happen and it's and it's hitting pollinators i mean it's affecting positively pollinators across the board you know spiders butterflies to everything um so it's it's helping bees too of course but uh all, all across the board it's been great Love yeah, that, that's man. great. And it's a great initiative. And you said it's in Bees Knees Week is in its fifth year now. It's in its fifth year now. And yeah, I urge people to even go follow the hashtag on Instagram and scroll through. You'll see, you know, bars posting from all across the country. It's it's really exciting. You know, you can take it. It can be a non-alcoholic beverage, too. It can be a photo of a, of a pretty flower. It really doesn't matter. Um, use the hashtag and we'll plant 10 square feet. Yeah, that's incredible. 
Well, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We're going to come back and keep talking about Bees Knees Week with Sam Nellis from uh, Caledonia Spirits up in Vermont. Stay tuned. GigPro is the solution to the restaurant staffing crisis. We're offering businesses the chance to instantly fill their shifts and food and beverage pros the chance for better wages, more flexibility in their schedules and benefits. If you're a business, go to gigpro.com, create your free account and post the shifts you need filled. If you're a hospitality worker, download the GigPro app, create your profile, start applying to shifts and start getting paid. We know what hospitality businesses and workers need because we spent decades working in the industry ourselves. If you're tired of wasting money on broken recruiting tools or sending your resume into the void, you owe it to yourself to give GigPro a shot. Whether it's a couple shifts or a full-time hire, GigPro lets you 86 the broken staffing status quo and embrace a better future. And we are back. You were listening to The Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Today we've got Sam Nellis in from Montpelier, Vermont, talking to us about Bees Knees Week and Bar Hill Spirits. And before we get back into that, I wanted to ask uh, some clarification about a word you used in the first half. Apiarist. This is someone that works with bees. Am I using that right? Yes. It's, it's an it's a interchangeable word for a, for a beekeeper, basically. Someone who's, who's tending to their apiary, which is a... Um, a bee farm, basically. Okay. So I've got an idea for you. If you ever open up a like experimental cocktail bar in Montpelier, Vermont, you can call it the apiary. That idea is free. That's yours to use if you want it. Gotcha. I'd like it a lot. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Southers, Southers on mute right now. It was too funny. He's, he's oh, yeah. was, rolling on laughing. the floor laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He had to turn his microphone off. It was too hilarious. Uh, but I do a, want to. It was, a, it was an audible and uh, dis, disgruntled <laughs> groan on my side. <laughs> no, we, someone's got to do it. We toy around because we have a we have a cocktail bar here within the distillery, and we were toying around with you know naming it kind of its own thing. Right now, it's just the cocktail bar at, at Bar Hill. Um, but our our address is officially one sixteen Gin Lane. And I'm sure you know the story Ooh. of William Hogarth, the painter, and, and Gin Lane and everything, right? And how he was basically commissioned by the beer industry to make that painting of Gin Lane, which is shows, you know, people. To vilify it, right. To right. vilify it. And then Beer Street is another painting he painted, which is people are happy and healthy and, and loving life. And um, so when we moved into this location, the driveway actually goes across some train tracks. And so the city said... Um, no problem, but we just have to make it an official street because the city has to be responsible for, you know, train train track crossing and keeping it safe and everything. And so they said we can name it. And then, of course, our our our, our president head distiller was like, well, can we name it Gin Lane? Um, so it's a little bit, you know, that's a little bit of our name, the Gin Lane Bar. Well, and I don't know if you know this, but here in Brooklyn, there is a bar called Beer Street. So yeah. if you're if you're ever in the neighborhood, you can come in and just be like, you guys think you're so great? And then stick around because it is actually a great bar and have some. Beer. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> I'll just start making up stories that beer makes you, you know, murder your family and, and hallucinate. <laughs> Basically, absent, right? Only sometimes. 
Um, but uh, let's let's talk a little bit about cocktail culture up in up in Vermont and what y'all are doing and what you as um, what was it the founder of the Montpelier USBG chapter is sort of what what you've done and how that scene has evolved over the years. Yeah, totally. I'm glad you mentioned it. Thank you. I, but you know, Vermont has been. You know, we, we there's some bumper stickers here. Vermont was green before green was cool, you know, because for, for a long time, Vermont has always been about farmer's markets and, and local food and organic food. And, you know, uh, with the craft beer craze started, a, you know, over a decade ago, we have some of the best breweries in the world. And so it's very much a beer and food type of town. And it took a while for kind of cocktails to catch on. Um, but I think once folks started understanding cocktails once folks started understanding that ingredients in cocktails could be more than you know vodka and whatever's coming off of the gun syrup um and could have also have local ingredients also have seasonal ingredients also have different types of classic technique and things people slowly started to develop an appreciation for that craft along with craft beer and and um and food you know, our, our job at my job as a enthusiast, as someone's passionate about this industry for the last 10 years in Vermont has been to, to educate as much as possible on, on cocktails and, and, and what that means. And, you know, it's, it's come such a long way and, and it's been great, but every time we open I open a new place, it's still the same thing in Montpelier, for example, it's a town of yeah, seven, 8,000 people, um, a couple places doing some, some, some cocktails, but no, cocktail bar specific i guess and so it's it's still part of that education i come from a very kind of classically trained technique um so i i like to put as many classics on the menu as possible to get people understanding um different things and then we work with a lot of local uh farmers and producers you know at the the caledonia spirits bar hill is is uh their motto is our motto is landcrafted instead of handcrafted. So it's really kind of appreciating nice. what's coming off the land first. And then our job is just really not to mess it up, right? And from the distilling side as well as <laughs> as the bar side. So we've we've become kind of known to local farmers in the region here that are kind of small sometimes small time family diverse farms that, you know, will have you know, 30 or 40 blackberry bushes, nothing major, but the, along with everything else that's going on in their farm, and they'll show up with a pickup truck with a couple bins, and we'll taste some right there in the driveway, and they say, great, you want to buy 20 pounds? And we'll buy 20 pounds, and we'll put it on special a bramble or something. Um, and so it's been fun to be able to connect on small levels with really small-town farmers at, at our bar here uh, to really showcase that. And we'd like to have even educational events where we invite the farmer um, and, and and do kind of a tasting of the produce, how to turn it into a syrup or something, or how to muddle and, and use it in a cocktail. Um, you know, our our mission in, in general also is is really like like I said before, connecting agriculture and cocktail culture. And we see distillers as being the 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 link between those two. You know, farmers back in the day had always some access to um 
a distillery, either on their site or a mobile still that would come around. You know, someone's growing apples. Mm -hmm. The natural thing to do is is sell the apples and make apple pie, probably sell that as a value added product and eventually make, you know, applesauce, apple cider, hard cider. And then that ultimate form of preservation would be distilling that into an apple brandy so that they have something to sustain them over the winter to sell um, to the community to trade or whatever. Um, so kind of reminding folks that distillation is still a real part of that ag- of that agricultural like line of that system. Um, and I think people forget that even this day and age, people will ask, you know, where do the tomatoes come from? Where does the beef come from on their mm-hmm. hamburger? You know, what, where, what brewery is this from local? But sometimes with spirits, they, they forget that, that, that even that vodka or that gin or that whiskey actually comes from, you know, some farmer. Uh, which we we like to think are the real rock stars in the industry, right? Yeah, behind, behind the scenes. Uh, yeah, you're you're right. It's a it's a curiosity to me that when I would work behind you know bars and in, in restaurants and uh, you know everyone wants to know every little minutia bit about everything that's on their plate. Where was this beef raised? Was it grass fed or uh, corn fed? Well, you know all the thing, and it can be dead of winter outside, and they'll say, yeah, then I'll have a, a mojito. You know, they don't care where the mint came from. They don't care. Uh, it's strange that we don't, the, the consumer doesn't really consider the glass as much as they consider the plate when they think about the farmer. When, when as you stated, it, it all comes from the farm. Like everything we consume is a natural product that was harvested by someone. Absolutely. And we've been working with, we have kind of our experimental line um, that we call experiments and agricultural rectification. And, and this is a, uh, just kind of experimental research product products that we put out here just at the distillery in Montpelier. Um, but we're working with local farmers to basically reintroduce these value added products to, to their program and to our program and to the community in general to think about maple syrup a little bit differently than just putting on your pancakes. We distilled some maple syrup into a vodka. Um, it's very similar to how we make the honey, but just with uh, pure maple syrup um and and sold that and and people are are blown away and we we also um i think we maybe tasted you on some of this last time southern but we're we're distilling burdock root which is a Mm -hmm. a interesting weed that grows everywhere and the little spiky balls get stuck in your dog's hair and people are really annoyed by it but the roots of those are are very starchy very delicious really heavily consumed in asian cuisines um and so we have a farmer here that that grows what grows naturally in the in the region, and so he grows dandelion and and burdock. Uh, he's growing weeds basically, right. and so we distilled some of that, and that that came out incredibly special and earthy and green and uh, really interesting spirit. Um, but but yeah, the idea is to kind of educate the the community around that and reconnect them. You know, just to plug plug that that back in. I think it just got unplugged. Talk a little bit more about the bar program itself. Uh, at your bar, because you're a distillery in Vermont, I don't know the rules, uh, are you only allowed to serve what you make? No, we're very lucky. So as this this location was being literally built at the same time, the, the Distillers Council and, and our team here in, in Vermont were petitioning basically the government and the legislation to, to allow us to serve more than just what we make, you know, it would have been, we ha- would have to serve just sample sizes of just what we make. We wouldn't have been able to mix in, you know, any Amari or, or, or vermouths or anything like that if we didn't make them. And we basically tried really hard and, and 
it's something that breweries had to do 15 years ago to petition to open a brew pub to be able to sell their beer that they're making on site directly at the bar that they have on site and not have to go through the third party distributor. We didn't ha- want to have to go through Vermont is a control state. So the Vermont state is basically the distributor. We didn't want to have to go buy our own product at full price at the liquor store right. just to use here at the bar. And so Luckily, we, we did have enough backing and, and the new law was actually signed in front of our still in the distillery here by the, by the governor. And um, we're now we have a, a full program. I mean, we're, we're able to carry cider and beer and wine and, and we have all spirits and uh, from, from all over the world that we mix in. So it's, it's a real kind of uh, complete hospitality program, a little bit of food too, uh, more kind of snacks and substantial snacks. Um, and it's a it's a big location. Uh, total, you know, we've done full like the concert we did a few days ago was about four hundred people total. What? Um, we have two wow. because we have outside now too, and we've actually just built a, a second little bar down the hallway for events specifically. And it was a little bit of our our COVID pivot in a way. We were trying to create this indoor outdoor space, um, and a pretty cool sustainability initiative there too was in the distillation process there's a ton of heat you know heating heating of liquids and cooling of liquids and excess heat etc um and so trying to close that loop and collecting that excess heat and and what we call our, our heat battery tank and then um it's actually piped underneath the pavers of our back patio so it's a natural kind of radiant heat coming from the floor that's all reclaimed heat. You know, it's no, no excess sure. energy or anything like that. Um, it's actually the same system that's sending hot water to the bar is directly coming from the distillery. When we first opened here, we didn't know quite as how busy we would be. And we were very busy and we had a little tiny boiler and we were running out of hot water within like two hours of the shift. And mm. it, and you guys probably know this. It's the worst when you're trying to clean dishes and, and glasses mm. and cold water. And it's not yeah. sanitary and everything. And so we, but we were committed instead of just adding another boiler to figuring out how to capture some of the heat coming from the distillery, which is a good, you know, hundred yards away from the actual bar. So piping that all the way there was was a challenge, and it wasn't cheap. But now I have the hottest water I've ever worked with behind a bar and as much of it as I've ever wanted. Well, plus if you're running it under the pavers outside, you're not having to shovel in the winter. Exactly. Right. It just keeps it nice and neat looking like, uh, the snow doesn't collect on the, on your pavers. Right. That's pretty cool. And so we were able, when we built this, this distillery, you know, the last distillery we were in, was a retrofitted kind of storage area, kind of looked like a barn that was small. And so we just did what we could. And then when we moved in, when you're building from scratch, you have all, all of a sudden a huge opportunity to think way more about uh, recycling and sustainability and stuff. And we're actually using 83% less water per bottle of gin that we make than we were before. Um, and and solar panels everywhere and, and you know all these sorts of initiatives are very cool. All of the stillage, you know, the waste, the spent juniper and... and all of that um, goes to a, a local biodigester to create uh, energy for the community. That's incredible. I love that. I love that. And I love that, that it's, you know, that, that you've sort of moved out of your little, like, you know, as you move out of the starter distillery that you were in, the one that everyone kind of like, you know, I, I feel like unless you have a huge amount of startup capital behind you, it's a little bit of sort of like cobbling things together and figuring things out. And then that gives you like a blueprint and the, the, the eyes that you need to see, oh, wait, we don't need 
a boiler, we can just run this hot water from our coolant into our, you know, into the hot water that we're using for the bar and just not let that heat go to waste and just reuse that. That's, that's incredible. Um, I also can't let you go without talking about, because I fucking love this stuff without talking about, um, Tomcat. Talk to me a little bit about how that recipe came to be and, and what makes it, you know, uh, it's, it's one of, it's probably the only gin that I will just reach for and just like pour over the rocks and just drink totally happily. Like I, I absolutely love it. Talk to me about where that comes from. Awesome. Greg, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Tomcat is our, our, our barrel aged gin. So it's the same gin as, as the Bar Hill gin with, with that uh, small amount of raw honey and, and juniper in it, of course. And then we're aging it in a new American white oak barrel. So, and it's charred. Um, so I like to tell folks, you know, it's the same barrel you w- would use to make a bourbon, but it's not a used bourbon barrel. And we, we never use them more than once. We age for about, you know, six to 10 months, depending on the size of the barrels. And then they're blended, you know, for consistency. Uh, but what's produced out of that is a, a very bourbon like gin, you know, cause it's, it's, it's very dark. It's very rich, tons of oak flavor, tons of vanilla, tons of caramel, um, that, that nice char, a little bit of kind of a, a cedar smell and, and in combination with the spice from the juniper and the, and the richness of the honey, um, you said it, people love to drink it just on the rocks. You know, we make old fashions with it, Manhattan's. And it's, it makes for a beautiful winter uh, Negroni or Boulevardier, you know, blend, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that came about, they had ordered, this is, you know, a few years now, but they had ordered some barrels because we've been, we've been slowly making whiskey this whole time as well, but that's just been aging and we're not rushing it. Uh, but some barrels came in and the whiskey wasn't going to be ready in time to fill the barrels. The barrels were going to dry out. They didn't quite know what to do. They had just made a batch of gin that wasn't 100% up to their likings to be Bar Hill gin. So like, okay, we'll throw it in these barrels and kind of see what happens. And that was like the, the happy, you know, experiment when you're, when you have such a small distillery, when you're, you're not trying to pour anything down the drain, you're trying to really pinch your pennies and, and save um, you. Uh, it's what is it? It's like a, it's necessity is the, the father of invention or something. Um, sure. And when you're that small, you can just be nimble. Exactly. Like, I don't know, let's just do this. Or, or, or change direction at will, basically. And and what came out is really a category on its own. It's it's a it's a barrel-aged gin, and it's it's you know, it's not a, just a slightly aged version or like a little slightly reserved version of our regular gin. It's really a standalone product. I mean, it 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 hits very differently in cocktails. It, it it's different can, different folks like it differently. Um, but it's kind of a people ask me what's your favorite you know and it's it's i can't even compare them there's a time and place for for both for sure um and and so we will make a a bee's knees with the tomcat and we'll call it a cat's pajamas of course Um, (laughs) nice and so that that also counts towards the towards the bee's knees week initiative i know i love i love that 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 gin and i love that cocktail like you were talking earlier about you know like how you like to when you when you write menus, make sure that there's some classics on there, and that's one of the things I love about a bee's knees. That is, it is a classic. It's not nearly as well known as you know your Manhattan's, your old fashions, or even yeah, or even something like an aviation or uh, uh, a last word like other up sours, other up gin based sours. It doesn't nearly have the same press, but it's ruthlessly simple to make. And I've never put one in front of someone and had them be like, eh, it's not for me. Like it's just such a it's such a lovely drink. So I love. 
what y'all are doing for the bees. And I love what you're doing for the bees knees. Totally. People are, they understand the three ingredients on the menu, which is nice, you know, compared to a lot of menus where they have some obscure Amari mm-hmm. or, or, or whatever. Um, so, and, but, but it's just a little different, you know, Oh, it's honey instead of regular sugar. And, and it works really well. Like you said, you know, invented around uh, the beginning of prohibition, but in France by a guy named Frank Myers, um, who had worked in the States a little bit. He was Austrian born and he was at the Ritz uh, hotel in, in, in hotel bar in Paris that still exists. They changed the name of the hotel of the bar to the Hemingway bar. Um, I feel like there's like <laughs> 200 bars around the world that claim Hemingway was a big drinker there, which, which I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him. I, th- I do think it's possible, but, um, and yeah, they, they were make, they made a bee's knees and I have copies of some of the original books that, that first published it. And it's, it's super simple and, and super delicious. And at the time, you know, it's slang for just the best. Um, and so it obviously works really well with Bar Hill Gin. Um, and it works really well for folks to have at, at bars as well as at home because it's just a, a tiny little prep work, which is making your, your honey syrup. Um, we like to do two parts honey, one part water. Uh, I like to remind folks to, to please not bring it to a, a full boil or even a simmer. Just really heat it slowly as, as less as less is more when heating it to preserve as much flavors from the honey as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so folks are, are able to make it at home too, which is so nice. Yeah. And the, the initiative and, and getting so many people involved uh, and, you know, now five years into it and planting so many uh, habitats for pollinators is, I think it's incredible work that you're, you're out there doing. It's, it's really great. Thanks. Yeah. And just to remind folks, you know, we're in the middle of bees knees week. So if you're listening, uh, post a, a photo of a, a bees knees or a cocktail or, or really anything you'd like and use, use the hashtag bees knees week and tag bar Hill at bar Hill gin and two, with two R's in bar and um, bar Hill will plant 10 square feet of pollinator habitat to help the bees. Yeah. Hell yeah. Good, we'll make sure we'll also make sure that's in the show notes for you. Um, and, uh, and we can follow along with bar Hill at bar Hill, right? B a R R H I L L. That's correct. At bar Hill gin. Yeah. At bar Hill gin. Okay. Add the gin on there. Um, well, thanks so much for spending some time with us, Sam, and talking to us about, uh, <clears throat> preserving the bees, uh, and making delicious gins up in Montpelier, Vermont. Uh, anything else you want to plug before we wrap it up? No, I was just going to say we're open here seven days a week at the distillery. We do tours, we do classes. So, you know, Vermont's a beautiful place to visit any time of year. Um, please, uh, the, the, the welcome is, is for the two of you two to come visit and we'd love to host you. Thank you. I will come visit seven days a week as establishments should be open <laughs> if they want to draw in crowds and accolades. I will absolutely no take reservations you up on that required. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to jump right up there. And we do have flat bread. Do for a visit to Montpelier. I haven't been back there since I left uh, many, many years ago. Um, so I could. I, could I think you'd really enjoy it. It's come a long way. Yeah, it's beautiful up there. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the Speakeasy. Tune in to Heritage Radio Network for many more shows just like this one. Uh, go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart uh, to donate to keep shows like this and many others on the air. Uh, and uh, that's it, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, until next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers Save the bees. So you don't shun the devil with your rock. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.